0: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: When it comes down to it, what are we at our core? We are North American Waterfowl. Thank you for joining me today. My name is Elliot. I've got Thomas Hoke from Hoke Outdoors with me again for this part two. On part one, we talked about Thomas's background, how he got into hunting, and just kind of his life as it was from about age eight, clear up through almost present. So we're just going to kind of pick up right where we left off. If you didn't hear the first part, I think you're just fine to go ahead and continue to listen to this one. It's not any kind of sequential. information so that you can kind of listen to them separately and that's it's not a problem but real quick thomas for everyone who maybe is just tuning into this one just kind of give us a little background of of your credentials who you are who you work for just a quick one-on-one on that
2: yeah we'll do so uh, my name is thomas hoke and i have the youtube channel hoke outdoors i've been doing that for about the past six or seven years now i also uh currently work for corey at drc calls so i've been doing that this is my third year with that and uh yeah, I'm 20, 23 years old now I feel like I'm honestly living the dream, getting to work in the waterfowl industry and uh, make YouTube videos and hunt some really cool places. So uh, very blessed. And uh, yeah, just that's kind of the basic rundown, I guess.
1: I think you are living the dream. <laughs> You're living my dream because my dream, everything that I do, as far as, um, working towards pro- progress the business side of stuff is that I can hunt a season the way I want to hunt it because when you can only hunt Saturdays, you're just ha- completely handicapped. And I just don't want to, I just want to be able to hunt a season the way I want to hunt. I want to go where I want to go to hunt the way I want to hunt. And, and everything probably to a fault revolves around that for me. Um, and I, it's been, it's fun to watch you get to do that um, as cause I've, followed you follow you know known you for a few years and you know, you're going through the biology thing and then you get out of it and you spin off and in, into this um a little bit of different direction and and you're so those of you who don't know we're all in the flyways collective together which is not really a very we don't actively promote that anymore but it's Five or what? Five or six? I can't remember how many guys are in the group. Six um, of us, yeah, six of us. YouTube content creators, and we did collabs together, but we're still good friends, and we Marco throughout the season, so we get to watch each other's season kind of unfold, and it's really fun to 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 see Marcos from you and and what you're doing, and and one thing that I really love that I see you doing that I'd like to, you to talk about a little bit um, is. I've seen you doing camp and hunt trips, which is something I've been doing for quite a while. I haven't done it for a few years, but camping in an environment and hunting for multiple days from that camp spot. As far as waterfowl hunting, I don't think a lot of people do that. I don't think it's really a thing. So um, share with me kind of what those experiences have been like um, with the camp and hunt and waterfowl hunt.
2: I've really, I've really only had one of them. Um, I did it with Corey last year and he's been doing it for years and years and years. Um, So last year was my first experience with that. And I really enjoyed it. I've always, you know, I've done little trips, you know, going down to Texas the last couple of years and getting Airbnb and stuff like that. So I've had trips before where, you know, it's just you and your friends and the only thing to focus on is hunting. And that's a really fun setting in my opinion, but actually camping for two days and um hunting feeling like you're really off the map and uh, the only focus is getting ducks to eat for dinner that was uh something that was almost a kind of addicting to me it felt like this kind of that same feeling as getting the the waterfowl bug for the first time so did you not take food
1: you guys didn't take food with you you only ate waterfowl did you take snacks or
2: i'm we had a couple snacks and we had like a bunch of veggies from Corey's garden to cook ducks with, but we brought no protein. Fantastic. Our only protein was going to be uh go out and shoot ducks. or I, I should take that back. I think we brought like two bags of goose jerky. Mm-hmm. So we did have a little bit in case we had got skunked or something like that. But uh, for the most part, our whole, I, the whole trip revolved around going out hunting ducks, bring them back to camp and cooking them. And so that was, it was really, uh, really fun for me and uh made me made me feel more connected to the hunts I would say right like
1: and to the, the environment
2: were, yes, absolutely like the hunts fe- really felt like they had a very clear purpose um there was no other bs going on with the hunt like it was we're here to shoot ducks because we need to eat dinner tonight so we still had fun obviously you know we're still joking around and um enjoying everything but it it was a very clear purpose to the hunt so i really enjoyed that aspect of it
1: how far were you guys away from the car where you were hunting
2: uh really not that far well when we were hunting we were a good ways we were probably I guess half I meant mile camping.
1: Off. i guess i meant
2: camping yeah camping we weren't that far we were a few hundred yards from the truck we kind of just parked the truck at a area where we could access, uh, the river and then took the boat up the river to a suitable campsite that Corey had, um, been camping in for the last couple of years. So mm-hmm. we weren't really that far off the grid. I know we do have some plans to go much further off the grid this fall and do it again. But, uh, for that hunt last year, we weren't really, uh, we weren't, We were close enough to the truck that I think if you had hit the unlock button, you might have been able to hear it,
1: (laughs) but it was a boat ride and a little bit of a jump out of the boat, which gives you the, probably the perception of being a little farther away.
2: Right. Yeah, absolutely. And we were on the other side of the river from the truck. So it wasn't like you could walk to the truck. You did have to get in the boat and go to the truck, which like you said, that offers like that gives you a little bit of separation from, I guess that safety net of the truck.
1: I thought I remember a camping trip you did with a friend that you brought in maybe from Virginia that you guys were camping for a few days. I don't think it was Corey. It was a different guy.
2: Was it, would it have been this past year?
1: I don't know. It was either this year or the year before because I thought you had done mm. a couple of those camping hunts.
2: No, I mean we've done obviously kind of the classic like teenager you want to get the spot, go out and no, sleep that the march count. the night before that doesn't count. Yeah. No, so I have, no, that I have, count. I have done some of that in Virginia, but in terms of like a, an actual hunt camping trip, like you do uh, this last year was the first time I had done that.
1: So I, I haven't done it for a while, but it's like building in me to do it. And the, the first time that we did it, And you got to be careful about the regulations and whether it's legal to hunt different places. And and we've had permission from – we have known that the people that run the complexes where we do it are okay with it, even though it may not be technically legal. We know that we're fine to do it. But the first time we did it was on an opener, a big duck opener, and we went five miles up the river the night before. We were supposed to leave in the – like earlier in the morning, but we just couldn't stand it. So at 10 o'clock, we're like, we just got – let's just go. So we, we got in the boat and we went five miles up the river and we portaged about uh, probably a couple hundred yards off of the river. And this was a real remote spot. I mean, no car's going to get anywhere close. And we got there and I couldn't sleep. So I'm like, okay, because by this time, it's like we've got the whole tent set up. Everything's ready to go. It's like 1230. I'm like, I can't sleep. I'm going to set up the decoys. So I go clear out into the marsh. And we're our, our campsite at that point is like, 60 we had layout boats because we had put the layout boats on the big boat i mean we went all out like we took everything and so we were probably only 50 yards from the edge of the water and this was like a a she had to describe it without over describing it so people know where i was um (laughs) it's kind of a timber hole so we were sleeping in the woods but then there was marshes in the in the middle and so we were only 50 yards from water's edge. I mean, you could see water's edge from, from our, from our tents. We had camo nets over our tents and stuff in case ducks flew over. So we went out and I set up the decoys. I got no sleep that morning. Anyway, we, we hunted that morning, went back to camp, hunted that evening. So we ended up like three days of hunting and three nights of camping in there. So it was pretty long. It was pretty long for that one. And there's just something about that immersion, like that's immersion on the absolute ultimate scale where it's like three days, three nights. All you're doing is hanging around, lazing around, having coffee, cooking campfires. It's just such, such an adventure. So that that's the biggest one we've ever done. We've done several others where it was just one nighters or two nighters, but we're still taking in tents. And I haven't done, I have, I have the desire. I don't think I'll probably ever do this, but I have the desire to do like a seven to nine day and not take any food kind of like I, I watch those shows alone you're, i'm sure you've watched those survival shows and yeah. this is a far cry from that i'm not saying that it's similar but i want to know over like a nine day period only eating what i kill how mentally it would stack up for me like how, how would you handle it mentally if you don't get the you don't have enough food or you do or that's all you're doing but when i saw you doing that and i'm i probably like watch that marco from my job <laughs> just like oh lord could i please be there camping and hunting with with those guys it's just it's so much fun just being immersed in it like that
2: have you ever when you're walking in or hunting your area have you ever come across someone else doing that
1: no i've never seen anyone do it
2: Okay. Yeah. I'm in the same boat. So I feel like it's a pretty kind of out there idea. Like it's something that I could see myself doing a lot more. And I've had those same thoughts about a, a long extended trip with no food and really see where your mindset gets in duck hunting, how your mindset about a hunt changes. But, right. uh, I feel like it's, it's not something that there's much, uh, much experience with like there's nobody to really ask about it it seems like
1: yeah i i feel the same way this all started for us fumbles and i back in the 90s we decided that we were just going to walk in and spend one night and and on this like mud bar except it was dry It it got so cold that night i was absolutely freezing but the whole thing was so much fun and we did sneak in on that one. We were totally illegal on that deal, <laughs> but we got it done. And it, I don't know why we decided to do it. We just wanted to spend the night out there. We just loved the environment so much that we wanted to sleep in it. And then a couple of years later, we were in the same area and I talked my dad into, there was this one marsh, You clear this corner of this marsh. There was no way to get to it other by boat. You couldn't walk in, you couldn't drive into it. And there was these fields on the other side that looked so beautiful. And so I taught, and this was illegal too, just because so, it was private, private hill. <laughs> I'm like, let's just walk up there. We'll take our sleeping bags in. We'll go an evening hunt. We'll walk up that hill. We'll sleep on the hill. And the next morning we will hunt again. it'll be great. And so I talked him into it. We took our sleeping bags, no pillows up there, no fire or nothing. I was destroyed by triggers and mosquitoes the entire night. I mean, destroyed i went to work on monday and i looked like a 16 year old with acne over their forehead it was the worst (laughs) night of sleep you could ever imagine i had acne chigger acne all over my forehead (laughs) That didn't go very well but it's, it's still a memory it's still a fun adventuresome memory i think a lot of hunting is that it's like as as men specifically we are so ingrained for like hunting adventure exploring it's like just down to the depths of us and that's why ultimately we hunt and and adding like the camping type stuff it's it's just like a scratching that itch even even a little bit more
2: yeah absolutely one thing that i felt when i went out with Corey on that trip was that i feel like every trip i've done before then you know you're talking about it beforehand you're sending your buddy pins and stuff like that like that trip, it was very impromptu. Like a day or two before, Corey's like, Hey, let's go do this. And me and my, me and Logan, who's a buddy of his, were like, Yep, we're down. Let's go. And so we had no idea really. We knew a general area, but we had no idea where we were going. We had no idea where we were hunting. So the whole thing, it like, it almost felt the same as like when I was going deer hunting with my dad and we're just walking up the mountain. I'm just following him. It's just an adventure. <laughs> I have no idea where I'm going. Yeah. Like I am solely dependent on him and I'm just here to. I'm just here to tag along. So going with Corey on that hunt was kind of the same. Like when we got our camp set up around midday and we went out for an evening hunt and when we parked the truck, you could, or I mean, when we parked the boat, you, there was a little beaver dam, but there was nothing huntable where we parked the boat in any direction you could see and we just took off walking in this one direction and i'm kind of looking i looked at onyx a couple times and there's no water popping up on the map where we're walking and we just ended up walking for like a half mile back to this little spot that Corey knew about because you know a beaver had built a dam there and flooded it up but it was a very uh very adventurous feeling to the whole hunt was just kind of walking and following and uh, just experiencing it as as someone who had no idea where they were going.
1: Yeah, that that's that sounds really, really fun. Did You guys kill him that day on that trip?
2: Yeah, we ended up we ended up getting, I want to say, 10 ducks for dinner that night. And then we went back out to that same spot the next morning. I want to say we got about 10 more. So nice. and we had one of <clears throat> we had two of the coolest wing teal decoys I've had in my entire life. The We had a flock of about we set our decoys really close and we're standing just behind this. was it's kind of like an open, it's just a, basically a part of the prairie out there that that beaver had built a dam and flooded up. So there's really almost no cover. And it was a long enough walk in that we didn't bring any blinds. So there was like three trees in the water out in that entire pool. And it's a pretty big pool, probably 200 yards across by about 500 yards long. And so we ended up just hiding behind those trees and, really small decoy setup and ended up decoying in a, probably a flock of about 30 or 40 blue wings into about five or 10 yards right off the bat. So is like, that, that was so cool
1: to- about it is that they were so close or did they do anything in the air acrobatic wise or just that they were so, so close when they landed?
2: It was partially that they were close. They also, yeah, I mean, they kind of, they came out in front of us going left to right and then gained a little altitude as they banked. Mm-hmm. And then kind of right as they completed their turn, they just set their wings and just started maple leafing right into the decoy. Yeah. So it was that was really cool to watch. And I, I was almost I was so enamored with it that I missed three times at about 10 <laughs> yards. So that tells you where where my focus was as the birds were coming. And it was <laughs> that could happen. Yep. So I can yeah, remember my like,
1: favorite teal decoy. My dad and I were hunting in this little timber hole. And it was like a bowl. And, but I mean, it was probably 150 yards, um, 100, man, maybe more like 100 yards long. And this group of about 20 teal came in over our left shoulder, and you can hear them. And they go, they fly away from us, and they get down to the end to where the end of the bowl. So they're hitting the other timber, and they all in unison bank. And I'm not sure if it was the sunlight hit them, but you know when teal bank and you can see those powder blue on their wings perfectly? It was all 20 banked in unison so you could see every one of their their wing patches at the same time and they they came right in and i was kind of different to you i was spellbound by it but we just unloaded our guns and we only thought we'd shot like two and we found like like six dead birds <laughs> we like, well, how in the world did we kill so many <laughs> Yeah, we just kept finding them and finding them fun i was like i only killed one i mean you, i only killed one i was like well apparently some we did a little better than we thought but <laughs> That's what yeah, i think I love I, about blue wings is when they bank like that, and you can see those wings. It's just amazing.
2: Yeah, the sound that comes off their wing is unparalleled for me. I mean, you get twenty teal zooming around a marsh, and I mean, it sounds—it just is—it's it's an, it's an incredible sound. So it's—it's yeah. uh it's almost like intoxicating. Like it's, yeah. you're—I get as soon as I hear it, I just—I'm—I'm mean, just tunnel visioned right in on those birds, and nothing else is happening except what those birds are doing.
1: Yeah, little blue jets. Yep. So, give me your top three favorite ducks to hunt, or you can do. We can do three or five, whatever you you do. Three or five, whichever one you want to do.
2: Okay. Um, I'd say number one would be black ducks. Um, and I can. Do you want me to kind of break down why it is, or do you want like right off the bat? Or yeah, I'd say black duck. Black ducks for me are like a mallard on steroids. Basically, they're wary, kind of wary like a mallard. They for the most part, they respond to the call kind of like a mallard. Uh, they you find them a lot in these kind of little hidden, secluded spots, even more so than mallards. Like it's very, very common when I'm scouting that the mallards. Let's say there's you know, it's a big swampy area. The mallards will be out in the main swamp feeding on smartweed and stuff, and there's 20 or 30 black ducks just stacked up on top of each other back in this tiny little timber hmm. hole that you would you would never even think to look at you know you just hear them or you flush them or something like that so they really have a propensity to get back in those ultra secluded areas and uh, i just love the way they look i think they're one of the most elegant elegant birds Um, i prefer their plumage over a mallard actually Mm. you know i I just think everything about them is really really cool so they're probably my favorite Um, i would say second favorite would probably be widgeon and that's just, I would say, because I've always had, it was like a very early fascination fascination with them. I know when I was watching your videos or Josh's videos, whenever I saw a widgeon, it was like my heart rate, or whenever y'all shot a widgeon or got into widgeon, or whatever it was, my heart rate went up. It was just something that, uh, something about them. I always, when I saw pictures of them, I thought they were, a Drake widgeon was the most beautiful duck of them all. Yeah. And so. Exotic. Um, yes, absolutely. And so I was able to shoot my first one, ever on like a very special hunt with just with one other good buddy on a public land spot. And, uh, ever since then, I've always just kind of had a a love for them. And then last year when we went out to Texas, we got into some incredible widget action of, you know, flocks of a hundred, 200 decoy at one time. Wow. And so, yeah, that was, that was incredible. And we were able to hunt them in a field over two dozen floaters and two spinners. So that was like a, like a, it was a, a bucket list hunt that I didn't know was a bucket list hunt. <laughs> we had been putting off hunting them in the field the whole week because none of us thought it was going to work. But after watching them decoy just on top of the spinner over and over again on this little pond, we were like, "If we get spinners out in this field. This is possible. And, uh, it was, it was an unreal first 15 minutes of a hunt, like, like nothing I'd ever really seen before.
1: Did you guys kill some nice drakes?
2: Yeah, we were able to, we were able to get a, a quite a few nice drakes, especially So we hunted them two times on this little pond. They were feeding in a wheat field and bouncing from the wheat field to the pond and back and forth like all day long. You could literally sit on the road and you would never stop seabirds flying. They were just, it was continuous the entire day, midday, afternoon, you know, whenever. And they were luckily they were roosting on a different pond. So we were able to get permission on, I guess I would call it the loaf pond. It was just where there were, it was the closest pond nearby. They felt safe there. They were going to go, they went there to get water and rest. And so we were able to get permission on that. We hunted that for um, two days. And then on the last day we hunted the field. And so on those first two pond hunts, we were able to just be really, really selective with our shots and really pick out drakes. We had good sunlight both days. Um, on the last hunt, we could have done it too, but it it was like we had a, we had incredible decoys within the first 15 minutes and we were done. It was one of those hunts that after we were done, it was like, we really should have taken our time, but Uh it was just so hectic in the moment. They were decoying so well. It was like, you couldn't pass them up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Wigeon. Widgeon. Then what?
2: mm, That's a tough one. I'm going to have to go with the state bird. Wood ducks. Like they're, they're a bird that I've had. I'd say, uh, a weird, like on and off, on and off again relationship with, you know, I really, my first ever really memorable hunts, besides that mallard jump shoot with my dad, those were all wood ducks hunts. I, I cut my teeth wood duck hunting. And then after a few years of doing that, I, get, I grew a little tired of them. You know, it was always the same type of hunt, it was a 15 to 30 minute um 15 to 30 minute ordeal for the most part you're always kind of hunting the same sort of environments you know when it got cold you might find them on some rivers and stuff like that but for the most part it was either swamps or flooded cypress or flooded oak trees so always kind of the same environments and then after being up here for a couple for a couple years when i got when, when i was able to go home last year and hunt wood ducks again i really felt like i grew fell in love with them i really feel like i'm I have a better, much better understanding of wood duck calling now than I used to. And while it's still not a science by any means, it's nothing like mallard calling. You know, I feel like if you have a good mallard call, and, or a good call, uh, duck call, and you're you're able to communicate with the mallards almost every day, it seems like wood ducks they can be more finicky in that regard. Uh, but I feel like I'm able to to communicate with them a lot more now than those first couple seasons where it was really just like. I need to get on the X because if I'm not exactly on the X, I'm not shooting a wood duck today. Cause I know yeah. they're all going to this one spot. So uh, nowadays I feel like I can pull them in certain situations. Hmm.
1: So if you have a, the X of mallards over on place a and an X for wood ducks on place B, you're telling me you're going to B? Uh, you're not, you're going to the mallard hole, Thomas. probably
2: probably but also i have to say in 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 that list you know Taste is part of that too. Right. And that's where the wood duck is going to come in just a little bit above the mallard. Because not that mallards are bad. I've had plenty of mallards that are incredible table mm-hmm. fare, but you will find mallards that aren't that good. Mallards, I don't know if they've been feeding on insects or feeding on mud flats or, or whatnot. But, you know, I've had a, quite a few mallards. It seems like, especially during a cold snap, I don't know if the mallards, you know, start eating uh, fish or whatnot. But, you know, I've shot some I've mallards. I've never had that, that
1: experience with mallards. I've had the experience with gadwall and even and wigeon. Um, okay, but I've never had a mallard like when you just cut into it, and you're like, "Whoa!" There's a smell here that's not pleasant.
2: I've yeah. never had that we, I, with a mallard. We actually had that. I've had it happen a couple times on the rivers in Virginia during really, really cold snaps, where I think they were eating um, clams, like because mm-hmm. you'll get clams in pretty shallow areas along our rivers. So I think they were eating clams during that time. And then last year, we shot a mallard on a tank out in Texas, and it must have been eating like directly out of cow pies because it literally had cow shit in its throat and then when we opened it up it smelled just like manure I mean it was absolutely
1: disgusting Did that go to the trash?
2: Yeah, no one had
0: the (laughs) balls to eat that one
1: So there is a time and a place to throw away a duck (laughs) If it smells like turds, it's okay (laughs)
2: we had i want to say i actually i want to say I, I diced it up and fed it to leroy because i always do hate like just straight up pitching right. a bird so yeah. you know i always want to use them to some degree or another right. i want to say i i at least breasted that one out and diced it up and fed it to the dog which i'm not oh, sure right. how much he enjoyed that <laughs> he got in
1: front me look <laughs> to you like uh, what are you thinking i'm not gonna eat this of course dogs love it, like eating crap so yeah, I hear Jordan's dog's been eating its own turds in the kennel. Did you hear his last podcast, he told a story about his dog eat, dumping in the kennel, trying to just eating it. I was like, man, that is the closest oh, thing ever. You gotta, no, I, you got to give that
2: dog away, Jordan. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a bad deal. Luckily, Leroy never had that issue, so yeah. I count my blessings there.
1: So those, those are your three. I'm my two, my one and two is just like lock solid and iron, which is mallards is number one for me. Cause I love the game of hunting them. Um, and then blue wing teal is, is locked in at number two because for us we have a whole blue wing teal season where that's all that's in the state that the first ducks that's in the state, I love how they ball up in groups. I love how they decoy. I love how they taste. I love how they look. It's just, it's a hold. It's like there's teal season and then there's duck season. And and our teal season here with living sort of close to Nebraska is I get four full weeks of it where it's mostly blue wing, um, a few green wing mixed in, but mostly blue wing. And then a lot of times our big duck opener is blue wings also. So it's like this whole separate entity where we're typically sometimes we do camp weekends during that. And those camp weekends are just like right by your car. But it's still it's like your buddies in camp and camping. it's just a, an event. The whole teal thing is just tealing in the central flyway is a whole different beast. Um And so I'm just absolutely in love with it. After that, it's like, I love um, pintail drakes. I love widgeon drakes. But when you're only shooting two or three of them in a year, it's just like, it's not the same. I mean, I'll shoot, you know, up to 30, 40. I think my, I don't know if I've ever, I think I hit 40 in Mallard drakes sometimes. Anyway, and the Mallard drakes and the same in blue wing teal. And then it's like everything else takes a second seat in my, in my numbers. It's heavily um, Mallard's blue wings and and sometimes we can really stack up the green wings depending on the year too which they're, they're nice little birds i don't i don't care for them as much as blue wings um but they are definitely nice little birds
2: hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news Yeah, your teal videos actually sent me on a, a, an adventure over a couple of seasons in Virginia because we have a teal season in Virginia. It's actually, it runs uh, the last two weeks in September. And I had kind of asked around about it. I'd asked my buddy Chase about it and some other people um, and I want to say it was my second year of hunting. I was like, "Hey, I'm going to go chase this teal thing" because I had watched your videos of teal hunting. Maybe it was the third season because I remember very vividly it was one one of your videos that like sent me on this adventure of trying to find teal <laughs> in Virginia. It was y'all. You were in a prairie marsh. It was you, Dan. I want to say your dad, and you might remember it based off of retrieve, but you sent Izzy through across threw some cat or like frag mighties yeah. on the other side of the pool. And she went through those and you were super impressed that she yeah. went through those. Right. And that hunt for me was just like, Oh, I have to do this. Like I, was great I you know, there's a teal season here. There's going to be teal here. You know, mm-hmm. they wouldn't have a season if we didn't get teal. So I spent two weeks chasing them and found out the hard way that Virginia does not really have teal. And if you do find them, unfortunately they're here one day and gone the next i mean mm-hmm. i scouted almost every day during that teal season and a couple times i found you know 20 or 30 birds what i felt like were huntable numbers i went back and hunted them the next day and they were gone so it seems like it's i don't know weird.
1: Yeah, they say that in arkansas habit- too about teal that they're here one day gone the next everyone in arkansas yeah, I, talked about teal says that
2: yeah i don't i i've you know kind of thought about it some i don't know if it's our habitat or if it's just the fact that they're You know, the I feel like the teal on the east coast, they're trying to get down to Florida or somewhere south of there. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's just that they're so dead set on getting that far south that they just don't want to stick around in the mid latitudes very long. Yeah.
1: The whole migration of birds is such a mystery. This is forever like during teal season every year. We'll be thinking, oh man, all the birds are north of us. They're just all north of us and they're killing them down in Texas. I mean, it's like, I, I don't know. I think some of them just go. And they just balls out down to Texas and others are kind of like a slow progressive migrators, but I, I don't quite understand how how that all works. It'd be nice as they get into more like um, GPS tracking, if we can get a better idea on, on some of this stuff, because I think a lot of yeah. what people think is not,
2: not true. Yeah. I love looking at the GPS tracker stuff. My personal theory on, um, Well, I mean, I guess we know that there's, you know, there's calendar migrating ducks and there seems to be a population of, of ducks, primarily mallards that follows the ice line. Mm -hmm. And my theory with the mallards is that we're actually um, pushing them to be more ice line dependent because you have these calendar migrating mallards that go down to Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana every year at the end of October, early November, Mm -hmm. and their duck season opens. And it seems like, at least from what I hear and what I see on video, and a little bit of experience I've had down in that part of the world, that that November timeframe, everybody down there is hunting. Like it's Uh just a cultural thing. Everybody is chasing those birds. So I feel like those calendar migrating birds, especially the mallards, they just get hammered on year after year after year down in the Southern States. And whether it be that those birds learn not to go that far South, I feel like it's not that. I actually feel like it's the fact that we're just killing a ton of those birds and the birds that follow the ice line, they just don't, they don't have the same mortality rate. You know, a lot of Uh times they're hanging out in South Dakota, North Dakota, after the season closes there, it takes almost a different breed of hunter to hunt them on the ice line. You have to be really committed and have the gear to do it. So I feel like our hunting practices just are going to tend to, uh, make that a shift over time where we see, you know, we already hear a lot about it, the flooded rice, the flooded corn fields in Missouri, holding the migration back. I think it's actually just um, the, the way we hunt in our hunting seasons and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. Open available water and food makes it easier for them to not move too. Um which we've got a lot. And we've, and over the last 10 years, we've had so many mild winters that I think are just, happenstance. I don't think it's global warming. I just think we've been on a little bit of trend of a little warmer, warmer winters, which certainly makes it a difference. But the, I, I totally am with you on the ice line thing. That's what makes Kansas so great in January is the ice line is always moving. So around the, about that time, about January one, you start wanting south wind days. The, all the rest of the season, you want north wind. And then once you get that real cold, now it's like you want the south wind days. It's, it's, it's a total shift. It's That's why I don't think I could live like North Dakota, South Dakota, because I feel like with every cold front, I would feel doom and gloom that the birds are leaving. Where right every time we get a cold front, we're really really excited until it shifts, and then we're looking for warmups. But it's never like oh man, all the birds are gone. It's never that way unless if you get eight in, you know six eight inches of snow, they're going to be gone for. But as soon as that melts. They're right back. It's it's and it's just a great place to be where I just feel like in North and South Dakota it would be it would feel like you you'd just be scared of those fronts, I guess. Do you ever feel Now I, I know I know you move around a lot, but do you sense that when you're up in North Dakota?
2: Um yeah I mean this was my this was only my first year in Minnesota and hunting North Dakota um and I was only able to get over to North Dakota for a week last year cuz you only okay. get um 14 days as a non-resident so I only went over there for actually like 5 days my buddies uh-huh. took a trip over there um and the rest of the season I was in Minnesota um but yeah for sure it was it was almost a sinking feeling those last few days of the season when you know the the cold and the snow was setting in um, it definitely, it didn't, it just didn't feel like the same natural progression of a season like you're talking about with warm and cold spells. Mm-hmm. That's what I've always been used to in Virginia. Um, it just felt like this kind of one dimensional season where, you know, it, you better get what you can get because it's going to be over before you know it. So I enjoyed right. it. You know, it was incredible to, it was really cool to get to be in the center of the migration and watch the whole migration come past us. Like mm-hmm. the last Basically, the two days we froze up in basically two days up here. And for those two days, you couldn't walk outside and not hear a duck or goose flying over. I mean, it was, (laughs) it was constant. It was. No lie, constant. Um, so it was, that was incredible to really yeah. get to see the migration in full force. And I'm not, you know, I'm kind of close to a river here, but I'm, I'm not even like what I would on what I would call like a true migration flight line. So uh-huh. I can only imagine what it's like to be like on the Red River over on the North Dakota-Minnesota border, which runs north-south. I have to imagine the birds follow that thing in, in, in incredible numbers during those kind of mass migration events.
1: Yeah, that's cool. Well, I want to jump back over the first episode you're on. We're really kind of talking about your timeline with your with your life and everything. And we didn't quite finish it up. So I want to jump back over to that, because in episode one, when you were on, we had talked about how you were working in Texas with the um, what's what's the name of that podcast?
2: a big honker podcast. Thank
1: you. Big honker podcast. And you're guiding for them. So from that point, you transitioned from there to working with Corey and his calls. How, How did you, how did that link up happen with you and Corey and how, and how, what do you do from him or, and what is your prospects moving forward? Like, like, are you, um, fully committed employee partner where, where follow us through that transition?
2: Yeah. So I, I just met him off of, well I heard about the opportunity to be an intern for him off of Facebook. Um, I want to say he posted it in the Big Honker podcast page. And um, I either I don't i want to say my buddy Mikey tagged me in it and said, hey, this would be something cool for you. And basically, he was just looking for a couple interns to come up for the summer to help help around the call shop and just kind of learn the ropes. Mm -hmm. And so I called him up um, a couple days after that. And it was a kind of a really brief conversation, like as, as brief of an interview, if you want to call it that, as I've ever had. It was basically, you know, hey, what are you doing? What are your experiences with working in the waterfowl industry and how soon can you make it here? And so I was headed up there about a week after I called him and it was three interns. The first summer it was three of us. Um, two of us made it to the end of that first summer. And then both of us came back last summer worked the entire summer again. Um, the other intern, his, his name's Kenan. And so he's a actually a teacher. And so he had to go back to teach in the fall. And I stayed on until Christmas time. And then uh, this year, I'm the only one um, who's working for Corey. So it's just me and Corey around the call shop. In terms of like my role, I basically do a little bit of everything. You know, uh, I do, a. I guess my main focuses would be kind of the social media, email marketing, stuff like that. I handle a lot of the customer service, a lot of just like the day-to-day shipping out calls, putting together orders and stuff like that. Uh, the stuff Corey handles on his own are like turning the actual parts, building up inventory that way, and then the tuning, and then pretty much everything else in the entire call, call making process, we, we share the workload. So mm-hmm. it's a really... Uh, unique work environment it's like nothing i've ever had before but i absolutely love it you know honestly it doesn't most days it does not feel like work so mm. uh, to be able to I, I look forward to getting up and coming into the call shop every morning i'm able to attack the daily tasks with a lot of energy because i'm most of them i really do find enjoyable um, and everything here is waterfowl centric so right. it's uh kind of, it's the dream job, honestly. So yeah, I, I hope to, you know, I'm, I'm basically full time with him now. Uh, obviously with the YouTube thing, I will still do a good bit of traveling during the fall. So I won't be here a hundred percent during the fall, but, uh, for all things considered, I'm full time with him at the moment. And I hope to continue that for quite a while.
1: So do you get the flexibility to kind of hunt when you want, or do you have to ask for time off or it is it kind of just slowed naturally slowed down during hunting season
2: um no it it definitely picks up during hunting season like we're shipping out we're shipping out more calls during september october november and december than any other time of the year those Mm -hmm. are it's kind of like you it's honestly the same progression as youtube you know Mm -hmm. things really start to pick up as you go into summer and then the the hunting season is the slammed jam-packed um jam-packed time so it is very busy around here but I I do have a ton of flexibility. I really don't have to ask to go hunting. You know, typically I'd try to run it by him just to make sure we don't have any big projects or anything like that. But yeah, I mean, I was for the most part last season, I never hunted a weekend. I was able to hunt exclusively weekdays and I would get my work in the call shop done on the weekends. So that was incredible. I I had my, the season I had up here was like nothing I'd ever seen before because I I never ran into any pressure because there was no one else out during the weekdays. Um, So that was, I mean, it was, it was incredible. So yeah, I mean, I, I can't, I couldn't ask for anything better. And, you know, Corey obviously hunts a lot too. So, you know, unless we have something that has a, a timeline on it, like me and Corey are going hunt. Like that's <laughs> right. we, we both yeah. want to be doing the same thing during the fall. Yeah. You know, sometimes yeah. it's almost up to his wife, Kelsey, to be like, hey, you guys need to get this done here in the next couple of days. Because <laughs> like, if we find some birds around, we want to chase them until, you yeah. know, until we basically can't. So, yeah, that's been an incredible it's been an incredible opportunity. I, I'm blessed to be so close to North Dakota, too. You know, I'm uh, within a couple hours of North Dakota. So, you know, I only. I was basically trying to save my week last year because, you know, I burned my first week when I was up there hunting with my buddies. And then I had my second week to use and I was just trying to wait until we froze up up here and I was going to go down to like southern North Dakota and go Mm -hmm. hunt down there. And unfortunately, it all froze up at the same time. So by the time Mm -hmm. I was done hunting up here, North Dakota was already completely frozen out. Right.
1: So does it work? You have two separate weeks or can you just have 14 days? How does that North Dakota permit work? As far as your 14 days yeah you
2: can you can have 14 days consecutive like uh 14 day block or you can break it up into two seven week periods but you okay. can't break it up any more than that unfortunately like i i really wish you could break it up into three day or five day blocks but yeah. you can't do that
1: yeah so how many states did you hunt last year to go through go through your progression of hunting as was location wise last year you started in minnesota right <clears throat>
2: Um well actually I guess I started in North Dakota because they opened their goose season August fifteenth. So I was out there for a couple of days, um, right when their season opened, and then uh had game fair and then a show in Wisconsin. So I didn't really hunt the back half of August. I just hunted for a couple of days just at the start of the season. Then I went back down to Virginia and hunted early goose down there, did some river floats, uh went down to North Carolina for a couple of days, did some teal hunting down there oh excuse me and uh then right when duck season opened up up here september 24th i came right back up here and stayed up here um all the way until christmas time so i hunted here and north dakota i did a quick little weekend trip down to arkansas to go hunt with my dad and some of his buddies and then uh went back to virginia and just hunted virginia and north carolina for the rest of the season
1: that's a lot so how many how many hunting days do you have in the field
2: oh i want to say it was about 45 or 50 yeah that's nice yep so not quite as much as matt um it was i i lost i didn't get to hunt at all from about november 10th to christmas time i didn't hunt i went down to arkansas for two days and that was the only hunting i did in that time frame so that was a, a little bit of a letdown i was planning on going out to Idaho and hunting with my buddy out there. And I caught flu the, the flu the week that I was supposed to do that. And that knocked the crap out of me. I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't get out of bed for like seven days. Ooh. So that kind of threw that whole trip for a, uh, through that whole trip away, unfortunately. And then I was staying up here, you know, I would have gone home a little bit earlier, probably around Thanksgiving time, but I was staying up here because Leroy, was only like three weeks at Thanksgiving time. He was born um, right at the start of November. So I had to stay up here uh, for a little bit longer, which I'm glad I did. You know, I got got to help out around the shop during a really busy time and uh, got to see really, I really got to see winter set in up here, which was like nothing I'd ever seen. You know, hmm. it was always weird telling people that like I'm from Virginia and they're like, whoa, what are the winters like up there? And I always just say, you know, We get snow for about three or four days and it melts and it goes away. And they're like, whoa, that's wild. Because up here you get snow and it's snow on the ground for six straight months and it just gets colder and colder and colder. So it was a it was a unique experience to really get to see the winter set in. When I packed up my truck, I want to say it was like December the 20th and it was negative 20 degrees when I was packing up my truck. So that was it was (sighs) unreal cold.
1: Is that, is that uh, an, um, like a depressing feeling to be in that much cold or do you just adjust to it?
2: No, I mean, it's for sure depressing. Yeah. You, you do adjust to it somewhat. Like I, I went back to Virginia and I don't know if I felt cold the entire win- rest of the winter in Virginia. Cause it didn't compare at all to negative mm-hmm. 20 where, um, you know, your, your nose is running and it's freezing to your face. Yeah, uh, <laughs> right. but, uh, it, It was depressing for sure, especially as a duck hunter, you know, to, to go a month and a half almost without any duck hunting during, you know, that's almost my favorite time of the year to hunt. I would say that it's my favorite time of the year to chase ducks would be like all of November and early December. Mm, And so to spend that entire time just in the house really and around the call shop was a little depressing, but also, you know, I was able to live vicariously through other people. So I, I was still trying to get my duck hunting fixed to some degree. Right.
1: Does it just feel like there's no waterfowl on the planet during that time? Like they're just all gone? None around at all?
2: No, nothing. I mean, not, not a bird in sight. You just drive around and all you see is deer. It was, it was wild. And unfortunately up here, it's like, it seems like the birds are so conditioned to using potholes and lakes that I scouted the rivers up here for like the week after we froze up. And I never found huntable numbers of ducks on the rivers. You know, there was oh. some holdout pockets of geese, but the ducks just did not stick around at all. You know, there's a few golden eye buzzing around here and there. But yeah. to get to them, I would have had to take the kayak out. And I'm Corey doesn't have a kayak. So I just didn't feel like that was a worth, worthwhile risk to go out solo on the river, just chasing golden eye. So yeah. um, it, it was for sure a, a just a different feeling and to not see waterfowl. For that long was was very strange so i was glad i was able to go down to arkansas right in, in kind of the middle end of november and got to see uh, a bunch of birds down there so that was kind of the fix i needed to get me through the rest of uh the time up here right it sure would be fun
1: to start up there and just kind of migrate along the way wouldn't it like you just yes. follow them on down south
2: <laughs> oh sorry um yeah, that would be incredible to, to see. I mean, I I can only imagine if the birds stayed in that type of concentration they were during the two days of mass migration here. If you could follow that, I mean, mm. it would be it would be unreal. It'd be like yeah. see, uh, you know, it would be lights out hunting the entire season. Uh, so I yeah. feel like you might Fresh get a little spoiled doing that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, it was. I think was as waterfowlers, cool we that.
1: need days of. We need times of struggle to make the good hunts that much more emotionally enjoyable. I wouldn't Absolutely. want to live that every time. I wouldn't want to. I need times where I'm not doing well, because you come through a streak where you're not doing well, and then you start having success, and that emotional high is well worth the the bad hunts. It's well worth. Yes.
2: It. Yep. Yeah. And that was something I noticed myself looking for up here was it wasn't I wasn't looking for bad hunts, but I was looking for like really hard to get into spots that maybe I was just going to shoot a couple birds and mm-hmm. have it be like a really close, intimate setting. But it, it seemed like the birds up here, like I was talking about, like they're just so conditioned to potholes and marshes, like mm-hmm. everywhere the birds were was incredibly ins- accessible. You know, there right. I was able to paddle back into some cattail marshes and get I felt like very secluded in that way, but like in terms of finding spots that are like almost off the map, um, it felt like it was kind of non-existent.
1: Hmm. Well, that's always a really fun thing to do when you find those places for sure.
2: Yeah. I mean that, that spot Corey had would be the only example of like a, a completely tucked away hidden spot of, mm-hmm. in ter- that I saw up here. And I scouted around very hard.
1: Yeah. Let's move over to Leroy, your lab and talk about um, how everything's going with when, when did you get your dog? What's going on with them? What's your training process? Where's he at?
2: Yep. So I got him, I guess I took him home right there before Christmas. He was born November 4th um, and he's out of, so Corey owns the female um, that had the litter. Her name's Rue and he's, she's three or four years old. He's had her, she's a master hunter titled. And mm-hmm. so the father is, uh, a buddy of his dogs, um, a field trial dog. Uh, so he's an F his, I guess, title is FC Carl. Um, so that was the, I guess the, the breeding. And then, uh, they were all black labs. I want to say it was five males and three females and just kind of right off the bat, there was, uh, Leroy was the, he was the smallest one of the litter. We had to actually like use the little, like a little, um, pipette just to get him breathing. He didn't come out really breathing that well. So uh-huh. um had to use that to get him breathing. And he was always the run. You know, at, at six weeks when I took him home or seven weeks when I took him home, he was five pounds and the rest of his littermates were ten pounds. So
0: wow. he was
2: always the run. I was always, you know, all of us obviously helped up here. I really Corey and Kelsey and their family did a lot more with the puppies than I did. Um I tried to help out as much as possible. But he was always the one that you had to make sure that he got a teat because otherwise his brothers and sisters would, you know, kind of push him out of the way. So I always just had a little bit of a a bond with him um, from the get go. And I just liked his personality. He was seemed very submissive. um, Whereas some of his uh, litter mates were kind of more, more spunky or aggressive or whatever you want to call it. So Mm -hmm. that was kind of my reasoning for picking him. um, And, took him home and we started basically with, the we started with Bill Hillman stuff. I'm not sure if mm-hmm. you've ever heard of him, but mm-hmm. yeah, started with his stuff. It came highly recommended from Corey. I used his stuff kind of clear up through six months. Um, and our training session, his training sessions are very much centered around balance. So you're doing right from the get-go, you're doing a little bit of retrieving and you're doing sit, and you're just walking him on a leash. That's how you start. There's those three things: is teaching him sit, walking him on a leash, and doing a little bit of retrieving. So we were doing that pretty early on. Basically, at three months, I started doing that with him, um, and then progressed kind of through the Bill Hillman stuff, and got up here right at the uh, end of April. And at that point, I switched over to using some of Chris Aiken stuff. And uh, I just, you know, I hate to say it, but I'm not a good dog trainer. It's like obviously i'm a i'm a rookie it's my first time doing it so i was you know doing it by myself trying to watch videos learn through trial and error i'm you know sending you're
1: not good or you're just inexperienced
2: i think i'm partially inexperienced but also you know getting i i've seen Corey and rue's bond and me and leroy don't have that same bond we have a bond but it's not as nearly as tight of a bond as him and rue is so you know, the way he describes building a bond, he de- it's hard for him to describe how to do it. He he says it's like almost like painting. Like obviously you can kind of learn how to paint, but some people are just more gifted with it naturally. And, you know, I've, I didn't grow up on a farm. I didn't grow up around animals. So building a bond with an animal is something that I've never had experience with. And, um, you know, it's hard for me to really differentiate if I'm inexperienced or if I'm just not gifted with it, but either or, I felt like I struggled with it. Um, my mm-hmm. training at times I felt overwhelmed. I felt, you know, like my training at times was all over the place. You know, mm-hmm. I tried to follow the Bill Hillman stuff as close as possible, but you know, we'd be doing one thing better than another. And I'm trying to mm-hmm. keep him balanced and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, I was trying to film it at first. I, I kind of ditched that pretty quickly. Cause, uh, I just felt like, I was already somewhat overwhelmed and the filming did not help that at all. I felt like the filming was a big distraction uh, from the actual training sessions. I felt like our training sessions weren't as productive when I was filming. So
0: Mm -hmm. uh,
2: it was a little bit disappointing because I felt like I could learn from watching the training tapes back and pick up some mistakes from them. But I just was making too many mistakes when I was filming because I was worried about staying in frame and the camera battery and all this other stuff is on right, my mind and right. i just wanted to be solely focused on training him i wanted to put 100% of my attention into that so mm-hmm. um you know when i got him up here he he wasn't as far along progressed as i would have liked him to be uh we how, still had a lot of work he? to do how
1: old was it when you got him up he was
2: uh, right about 6 months yep
1: mm-hmm.
2: yep so our our basic obedience was basically just limited to um, to sit at that point. I hadn't really taught him anything else. I tried to start working in other stuff, but I just wasn't consistent enough. I'd say those were my, um, two weak points as a trainer was consistency and energy, which I guess is kind of the same thing. You know, I, I wasn't consistent enough in the energy that I brought to training sessions. You know, Mm -hmm. at times I would get frustrated and I would try to keep a training session going for too long. Um, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So just a lot of like rookie mistakes, a lot of stuff that, uh, you know, you hear, you, you know, if you talk to a pro trainer, he's going to point it out very quickly as you're doing this, this, and this wrong. And it's very right. clear right off the bat. Um, so when I got up here to Corey's, he was able to point out a lot of those mistakes I was making in training. And like the last couple months have been really productive, got him through basic obedience, um, collar conditioned, um. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. And so I actually just took him down to Corey's buddies. Uh, Corey's a, a buddy of Corey's. Uh, his name's Tim Springer. He has, uh, the training service dynamic retrievers. And so, uh, I took him down there two weeks ago now. And, uh, he's going through force fetch down there. Unfortunately, after like two days down there, he just went lame out of nowhere. Like went lame, mm-hmm. super lethargic. So, um, I'm very thankful for the trainer. He's been very, open with me communication wise he's been texting me a lot and he informed me right away and was like hey what do you want to do and i was like i'd i'd prefer if you took him to the vet so they took him to the vet next day and by lame
1: what do you mean like he was limping like a bad leg or what
2: like just like walking on eggshells just didn't want to walk at all and so they took him to the vet and he tested positive for lyme's disease and so that's apparently a very common symptom of lyme's disease which. Luckily, um, the vet said, and from what I've heard from Tim, um, he's been improving, uh, pretty rapidly. Apparently uh, we, hopefully we caught it soon enough. Cause, um, if you catch it soon enough, it's just, you put them on antibiotics for 30 days and it knocks mm-hmm. that, <clears throat> knocks that bacteria down. And so, um, if it progresses too far, it can turn into liver fail, failure and stuff like that. But it, it seems like we're past that point. So hopefully the antibiotics will help him out and tim said he was kind of already starting to show big improvements in the first couple days after he started taking those so he's been taking them for uh four or five days now and seems to be making improvements so hopefully he'll be back to training soon and i'll and how how old is he right now um eight and a half months
1: yeah i i can tell you one mistake you're making is you're worrying about the timeline of it yes Um, for sure so with with georgie being the first dog that i really was serious about training i was way behind everyone else the normal timeline i mean i didn't even get to force fetch until like 10 11 i can't remember i think 10 11 months i mean i don't remember exactly what it was but i know that i was way behind cuz i just decided i know what i needed to get her to and i didn't care how long jobman kept telling me it doesn't matter how long it takes it goes until you're done but it's better to go slow than than not and i didn't really i felt a lot of times like i didn't know what i was doing i i had a, some good a good support network around me but i i just it was much slower even now like i've got a buddy who's got a two-year-old lab that already has her hrc finished and here's georgie's four she's going for her title this this weekend it's just it's just the pace that we're at because i mean it's not her i know it's me but I think if you start worrying about the timeline of it, then it's going to add a needed stress. You just need to let the the timeline be whatever the timeline is. It took us almost two months to get through forest fetch. And I know it was me. Mm. I know I wasn't doing a good job, but it just took two months. This is what it took. Um, You just have to let it progress the way, the way it progressed. Anyway, go, go on. She's a, uh, so that's where you guys are at now.
2: Yeah. So yeah, he's still down at the trainers and, um, Yeah, I think the timeline thing, you know, I just, I really wanted to hunt him this first season, you know, I Mm -hmm. got him in November. So, you know, at at the very least I wanted to hunt him kind of the back half of the season. He would have been a Mm -hmm. year old and I felt like Mm -hmm. that would, that would hopefully have been old enough to hunt him. So I've kind of moved away from that. You know, if it happens, it happens. And if he's at that point, you know, I'd still love to hunt him, but I, I was definitely, I was pushing for that and rushing things and and things of that nature. So I think, yeah, you definitely hit the nail on the head with that. Yeah,
1: it's it's hard to not get them, get them out. And some people start their dogs really, really early and say they have great success with it. I know that I've never heard a professional trainer tell you you should have your dog out at six months hunting. <laughs> but there's a lot of people that do it. And, uh, but I would rather, I, I would rather, well, well with me, number one, I was kind of working with a promotion with with Chris and I didn't want to hunt the dog that I was helping promote him with until I felt like it could do the justice for the type of dog I knew it was with this breeding. So I was in no rush to go out and, and have this dog look foolish um, on video, but I, I I just, I I wanted to do it when she was ready, really ready to do it. And, And a lot of times hunting habits can be bad. Hunting habits can be really hard to break. You can break them, but it can be really hard to break. And this whole thing of like, let's just get it out there and we'll figure it out in the field is just doesn't, it's not how it plays out. What plays out is you get, most people get excited about the hunt and bad habits break out and you don't reinforce the bad habits. And now you have all this mess on your hands. Um, and, And I will say, it depends on what kind of dog you want. If your goal is to have You know, a dog that has a career in hunt tests and and does things exactly the way that you want to do them. That's different than someone that that isn't isn't looking for the hunt test world or doesn't care about even blinds in the field or, you know, everyone has their own kind of criteria to what they want with the dog. And none of it's wrong, except I would say that unsteady dogs are dangerous. It's a danger that you're going to injure the dog. So I think that that's the, the, that's my stickler. It's like your dog should be steadier on a leash. One of the two, one of the two, but other than that, it's everyone's own dog and they can do what they want to do, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I was able to spend actually two full days down there at the trainers. I was able to sleep on his couch and kind of shadow training sessions and pick his brain. So that was very informative for me. Um, Obviously I've been, trying to do that with Corey, but, and Corey has been helping me as much as he can, but Corey, I would say is just a very naturally gifted trainer. Whereas Mm -hmm. Tim, you know, he, he's a professional trainer. He works with new trainers all the time. Like he Mm -hmm. was more of a teacher in that regard where he was really able to break down to me the things that I was doing wrong and how to correct them and watch, he was able to watch me train and point out things in real time. And, you know, when I'm shadowing his training sessions, he was able to highlight to me what the dog's doing right, what it's doing wrong, a lot of right. stuff about body language, a lot of just the subtle yeah. things that you overlook watching a video of mm. someone else train. You know, you're you know, I'm oh one thing Corey pointed out very quickly is I was just talking too much. I was just almost having verbal diarrhea when I was yeah. training him. Because that, you know, I'm watching someone else train and I'm focused on what they're saying, but you know, obviously so much of a dog, a commute, the communication with a dog is nonverbal. So getting to be down there and really watch how a professional trainer goes about their business for two days was incredibly informative. Um, and something I'm hoping to do again.
1: Right. It, it's so easy to do dumb things as an amateur, you know, that goose hunt we're on on the flyways collective, the really good goose hunt we had, it was Georgie's first goose hunt. I can't even watch that video. Because I spent the whole time screaming at Georgie to carry the goose another foot. It's like, I can't, I literally, I can't even watch it. It's it's because I just, my expectation was that she would bring it one more foot to me. And all I did is scream at her the whole hunt. She was doing just an amazing job. This little tiny year old dog with these big geese. And I'm just so hung up on this, like her getting past this bank. And it's just like, ah, gosh. And you get her on the pros and it's, it's a different, it's a different ball game. I spent, I've spent 10, 10 days out at Flatliner Kennels, 10 hunt, 10 training sessions where I'm working Georgia and he's standing just right behind my back. Literally some of the sessions he's just telling me what to do and like this, this, and he's in control and I'm just kind of the robot. And, but just to see the detail of what they know, what they see, how they are breaking down information of the dog in their head. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And man, you can learn so much from, from working with pros like that. I mean, it it's, so if you can get in that situation where they're coaching you, I, I advise get there as much as you can, because I know in this summer, Georgie and I have both progressed her as a dog and me as the trainer, a hundred fullages from being around a pro like that.
2: Yep. Yeah. yeah. I felt like I learned more in two days down there than I did from watching tens if not hundreds of hours of videos over the past few months just -hmm. getting to see see the real deal um, and just just watch watch a variety of dogs at all different levels that was the really cool thing too you know he had dogs that are running high level running field trials there and he had dogs who were just learning the basics of collar conditioning Mm -hmm. so getting to see how they approach those different levels of training was uh really informative
1: yeah um. Do, so, do you are you planning on doing hunt test stuff with Leroy?
2: I would like to, for sure. Yeah, I'd like to run AKC, UKC stuff. I don't think I would do field trial stuff um mm. with him, but yeah, I would like to hopefully get him all the way up to at the very minimum an AKC Master Hunter title. So, right. which I guess let to say at the minimum, you know, that's a that's a very high level to have as it's a, a minimum. A very high level. But, Yes, yeah. that that would be. I guess I shouldn't say at the minimum. That's my goal. So right. I would like. I ideally I'd like to run them in both the AKC and the UKC. But um, mm-hmm. I think if I do, when I do get into that, I'll focus on the AKC stuff first.
1: Yeah, we've got we're up in South Dakota this weekend, and she's got a test Saturday and Sunday. So she just has to get one of the two days to get her um, title, her finish title, which was the goal, my goal from the start. So that'll be. I'm really excited about that, and I think she'll do. She's eight for eight. She's yet to she's yet to um, um not pass a day, which is surprising. So she's eight for eight. She seems to do better in the hunt test than she does in training. It's it's weird. But then next summer we're gonna jump over to AKC, and we'll jump right in on the um, master level, I think, and just see what we can do. And then we'll hopefully she'll have her HRCH and then her MA. And then from there, I don't know. I mean, I'm looking at this as a career for her. She's only four. So I figure by the time she's seven or eight, there's no reason why I can't take a shot at the Grand or the Master Nationals. There's no reason. I mean, I've got all the resources. She's not ready now, but I've got all the resources around me. There's no reason I can't take a crack at at, uh, at some of that stuff.
2: Um, yeah, absolutely. Can't. Would you run her yourself in the, in the mm-hmm. Grand or the Master Nationals? Unless
1: yeah. the only way that I wouldn't is if I if I've gotten to that because I'm gonna I can't there's no way I can take up that much time for my job, so I would have to not be teaching to do it. If she gets to like seven or eight and I'm still teaching, and then I'll send her with either uh, probably with Jobman, um, and have him run her. Which <laughs> I feel pretty confident in in having her in his hands. Um, but yeah, if I needed to, I would, but I don't. I want to run her myself. I want to run her myself only like 25% of those dogs at the grand pass. And most of those are professionals. So it's a, it's not an easy, not an easy thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Corey's um, dog, Bonnie, she actually, she was at the master national last year and failed on the last series of the last day. Oh man. Yep, Went the wrong way on a, on a whistle stop or on a hand signal. And so, yeah, it's like, gut-wrenching to send her you know all the way out to oregon for a week and pay all that money you know he went he (laughs) he went with uh she went with with uh tim's wife lauren springer she runs uh dogs in the hunt tests and so yeah Uh, to go all that way and spend all that time and fail on the last it's like two
1: full weeks it's like two full weeks i know for the grand it's two full weeks there's a week of uh, training and then a full week of tests it's expensive big deal so we'll get into it um I did want to talk about a couple other things, but we're kind of running, running long on time. Um, Why don't we, is it right if we jump over and record this last session for Patreon? Give me about 15 minutes for that. Um, I want to talk to you. Gosh, there's like three things left I want to talk to you about. But um, I definitely want to hear about the river float trips. And, and so that's what I want, wanted to talk about. So we're going to close this down here. Uh, Thomas and I are going to move this discussion over to Patreon. So if you want more content from Freelance Duck Hunting or the North American Waterfowler podcast, it's patreon.com slash freelance duck hunting, where you can come over and have a chance to join me on the podcast, have a chance to win a hunt weekend, um, get a free access to the North American Waterfowler app. It's patreon.com slash freelance duck hunting so i'm going to close this down and thomas and i are going to pick up this conversation but thank you for joining me until next time you've listened to another episode of the north american waterfowler podcast